my name is Chris. I am one of the teaching pastors here at Ascent, and we are starting this new series called Life Together. And we want to really talk over the next couple weeks about the idea of community and what that means specifically for a church. Um, so it is a, uh, we'll say, a well-trodden trail in the Bible. The Bible has a ton to say about community, about the relationships that we form. Um, but when something gets said over and over and over again, right, if there is a ton of repetition, that should draw the question in you, why do they keep talking about this? And I think one of the best answers to that question is because I think God had an inkling that we were going to mess this one up a lot, and we're going to need a lot of reminders. And so there are a lot. And there's, there's one point in particular it's one of the longer teachings of Jesus, uh, where Jesus is going to talk specifically about how we all are going to live together in community. Um, but a little background first. The passage that we'll read today is in a book in the Bible called the Gospel of John. It's in the 17th chapter. But I want you to know a little bit about what is going on at that point in the book before we read it. It is uh, the longest portion of like constant teaching that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. He has a lot of really important things to say, and he wants to make sure that all of them get said. And there's a reason why he has all of this urgency. And as I was reading and preparing for this, I had a memory. Um, a few years ago, uh, I came to a staff meeting here at Ascent on a Tuesday morning, and at that time, we would sit in the little like, glass area between the sliding doors up there because um, it was the only place we could heat in the building at the time. And so we'd all huddle around a table in there. And on my way into work, my mom had called me and told me that my, my grandfather had been hospitalized, that it was very serious, and that the doctors were saying they didn't expect him to, to live through the day. So I walk in a staff meeting with that. And on our staff meetings, we regularly do a check-in, how are you doing? And we pray. And so I had shared all this, and they prayed for me. And then Bill did a weird thing, a thing that doesn't normally happen. He said, hey, we're going to take a quick break, five, ten-minute break, and then we'll resume staff meeting. And I was like, oh, I guess, I guess Bill had too much coffee, and he needs a bathroom break or something like that. Um, but what he did is he pulled me aside, and he said, Chris, you need to get in your car, and you need to start driving. It's like, you don't you don't get a second chance for this type of thing. You need to go back to Kansas City. You need to try to get there before your grandfather passes because there's no do-overs here. And he said, and I was like, no, you know, I, we got the kids. I had little kids and we got to figure all that out. And he's like, Chris, no, you need to go. That your job today is to go. It's not a sick day. It's not a vacation day. This is a day where you need to be in Kansas City. And he kicked me out of staff meeting. So I went home, I grabbed an overnight bag, and I, and I drove nine hours back to Kansas City. So I had nine hours alone in the car, hoping and praying that I would get there before my grandfather died to think about what will I regret having not said if he dies before I get there. So nine hours driving and thinking, and I finally get there. And I pull up in the hospital, and I run inside, and I figure out where he's at, and I get up to his room. And you know, when I got there, I didn't want to talk about baseball. I didn't want to talk about the weather. I didn't want to talk about the things that I might otherwise have talked about with my grandpa. I wanted to tell him what he meant to me. 
I wanted to tell him how important he had been in my life. When we know that the end is approaching, our conversation shifts to the things that really matter. And I tell you that story because the passage that I'm going to read is literally the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he is arrested. The last thing he says while he is still a free person and able to teach and pour into the lives of these people who have followed him for years. These are important words. The way that the gospel of John has been put together points to this as a crucial and key moment. And this is what he says. This is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, let's break this down kind of verse by verse. Verse 20, right? Verse 20 says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. Okay, so Jesus has been praying for the disciples who are with him. And at this point, he turns and he directs his prayer to a new audience, not the disciples, but those who will believe in Jesus because of their word, because of their work. Jesus is talking about us. He's talking about all the people who are going to come to know who Jesus is in, for the entire long stretched out history of the church. Somebody smarter than me once said that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So we have to be able to approach it and try to understand the context within which it, it was written. This is the one part of the Bible that is written directly to us. Jesus says this, it is recorded for us, that this is not just for those who are in the room for him, with him, but for everyone who will come to believe in Jesus through what they do. This is a big deal for us to listen to because it's the only part that those of us in this room right now, this isn't just for us, it's to us also. And then he says this, this kind of long three-clause sentence, right? He says this, he says, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, three parts. First part, he says that we would be one, that there would be unity in relationship there. Second part, he says that the way that we are to be connected to one another is just like the way that Jesus is connected to the Father. I'm in him he's in me. And then the third part is he gives us so that. There's a reason for it. And the so that is that the world may believe. That's verse 21. Verses 22 and 23, then repeat that formula. He says it again. Again, we said this at the beginning. Repetition should cause your like antenna to go up that maybe I should listen to this part. So this, and he says, as you father are in me 
and I am in you, may they also be in us. So what might that mean? What is the fundamental nature of the relationship between Jesus and the Father that we are called to to put into our own life? And to understand that requires a basic working knowledge of a fundamental piece of Christian theology called the Trinity. Now, when a pastor on stage with a microphone says the Trinity, there are three possible responses, right? One is for people who've been around church for a long time and also like Sudoku. Those people get excited. They're like, ooh, it's, it's puzzle time, right? The second possible response is for people who've been around churches for a long time and do not like Sudoku. And they think, where should we get lunch after this? The third possible response is for people who haven't been around churches for a long time, and they go, huh? That's, that's the only way that we can do it. And the reason is because for the last, honestly, several hundred years, the Western kind of church has largely pressed this piece of um, our theological origins aside. We don't talk about the Trinity. The Trinity is the idea that that God is one, but also three, right? Three in one. Um, And I was gonna like give you a little primer about this thing that happened in 325 CE called the Council of Nicaea. And I thought there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, And I figured, you know, the best way is through really sarcastic cartoon Irishmen. And so if you'll turn your attention to the screens, we'll get a little primer in the Trinity. Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, The Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, Okay, Uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. (laughs) All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. (laughs) Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. 
Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Okay, you got it? Here's the thing. I have no interest today in trying to break down and explain how one thing can be three things. But I think the problem is We've let this concept become just this logical puzzle. It's like a Rubik's Cube that you mixed up and you didn't know how to put it back together, so you just put it behind something else on the shelf so you didn't have to think about it anymore. Now, there are books you can read and you can learn about words like consubstantial and to try to understand that, but because we have so easily set aside the entirety of the idea that God exists in three persons, we've missed that one of the most basic, most fundamental aspects of God is that in all ways and in every moment, God is deeply relational. The relationality of God is a foundational piece of any understanding of God that we very often miss. Because we don't know how to repeat whatever St. Patrick just said, we push aside something that at the beginning of the church was seen as perhaps the most important question and most fundamental piece in understanding who God was and who Jesus was. And we largely pretend like it's not there. And there are some really negative side effects that can come out of forgetting this fundamental piece of God's person. And so I'm going to have, I'm, I, I have to warn you now, I'm going to read a selection from a book, okay? But if you're new around here, there's something, we have four teaching pastors here at Ascent. And you get a different feel from each of us. So it's me and it's Bill, who he was up here doing announcements, and it's Aisha and it's Maurice. And, and so um, each time one of us teaches, it's a little different feel. So like when it's Bill who's up here, you're going to think, oh, this is the guy that Bruce Springsteen wrote Glory Days about, right? Because he's just going to tell you how awesome at every sport he was in high school. He's a legend. 
in Washington State, apparently. Uh, and then there's Maurice. Maurice, who actually did play college sports, who like actually was that good. And you're going to be like, oh, this is like a cool guy up here, right? And then Maurice is married to Aisha, who's also up here. And she's going to be the one who's going to demand you talk to her while she's up here. But, but also, she's like this fantastic dancer and actress. These, these were cool teenagers. And then there's me. Yeah. I'm the guy who's about to read something that's going to make you think, I'll bet that kid got picked up and put in trash cans by upperclassmen. <laughs> and you would be right. But... I may not have been president, or uh, what, what do you call the uh, captain? That's it. Captain of the football team, but I was president of the debate club. So uh, here we go. I'm going to read something from a book. Uh, it's got some big words in it. Um, big words are things that people like me use to try to, because we're insecure, and we hope it makes you think well of us. So I'll break these down, I promise. Just hang in with me. This is what it says. One of the tendencies in contemporary popular ecclesiology, let me stop there, um, ecclesiology is uh, insecure academic for the church, how we understand like the study of the church. One of the tendencies in contemporary popular ecclesiology has been to stress the instrumental and to eclipse the representational dimension. In an instrumental view, the church primarily exists to do something the character of its being is neglected. What remains is a purposive ecclesiology in which the wider framework of God's Trinitarian agency recedes. Its eschatological dimension, don't worry, he'll define that term in the rest of the sentence. Its eschatological dimension, or the way in which the church embodies the future toward which God is drawing all humanity, is unfortunately underemphasized. The church exists merely to accomplish something on behalf of God. It is then not God who is doing something through the church, but the church that bears the primary responsibility. I'm a kid who grew up in church, right? Like was always at church. And as long as I can remember, I can remember being told that it was our job to go out and be the hands and feet of God. Like that language I heard so often. We are the means by which God is going to do stuff. And that's not necessarily untrue, but it is not a full picture. Um, when I was in high school in the 90s, and at that time, I think they're actually making a comeback, I probably had like 15 WWJD bracelets that I wore. Anybody? What would Jesus do? That was like all I knew to focus on. Was, was I'm supposed to be doing stuff, so I'm going to go do it. When we forget the relationality of God, that is where, that, that is the unfortunate side effect, that forgetting that God exists fundamentally as community gets us. When I start to think of God simply as an individual, I relate to God as an individual and when I see God is just sending Jesus to do stuff, who's then going to send me to do stuff, I miss what Jesus is saying in this passage that we read. That the way that you all live together as the Father is in me and I am in the Father, I pray that you would be in us. That we would live out of that kind of community. 
I had a professor in seminary once challenged the class and said, you know, it's just as appropriate to refer to God with a plural pronoun like they as it is to use a singular pronoun like he or she. But we forget. We focus on the one. We forget about the three. I said at the beginning um, that the Bible talks so much about community because we know we are so prone to mess it up, and that, that is true. There's another reason why it shows up so often from the beginning to the end of our scriptures. And it's because it is one of the most basic pieces of God. At the very core, God isn't just involved in community. God is community. God exists as a constant, interdependent community of these three persons showing self-giving love to one another, engaging in and seeking the good of the other. See, God, God didn't just sit on high, far back and removed from the earth and said, Jesus, go down there and fix it. And Jesus didn't just walk around for three, words, for three years doing stuff and then die on a cross to fix it and then send the Holy Spirit so that we could go do stuff. See, when we embrace the idea that Jesus wasn't just sent from God, that Jesus is God, that Jesus doesn't just pray for the Holy Spirit to be sent to us, but that the Holy Spirit is God, we see that you cannot hold the concept of God in your head as it is described in our scriptures without the idea that it is interventionist, that it is in our lives, that it is surrounded, that it does not stand far apart. God does not stand far apart. God enters in, lives amongst and with, and calls for us to do the same. That's why Jesus says in verse 20, 21, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they, that's us, may they be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the model for our communal life. It's God's call for us to live into. And this is what Jesus, in his final few moments, chooses to center his conversation with his disciples around. This is the important thing that he says, you got to hear this before I go. That, that Jesus' call in our life wasn't just merely about what we do, it's about who we are and what God will do through us. I'm in an interesting period in life. I actually like, did the math this weekend. For the first time since I was a sophomore in college, which was 20 years ago, I wake up on a Sunday and decide if I'm going to come to church. I've been uh, on staff or involved in leadership since I was a sophomore in college. And back in April, we made the announcement that I was, I was stepping back from my full-time position here. And so I, I continue to work for about 10 hours a week. But apart from when I'm teaching, Sunday is not a work day for me. So literally for the first time as an adult, I wake up and think, am I going to church today? 
Always before, it was like, I'm going to church today because I want to have a job on Monday, right? And so last, last Sunday, I just want to talk through last Sunday, I woke up and my, my wife, I knew, was not going to be able to join me at church last Sunday. And um, so I knew I was going to get to fight the uh, get ready for church and get in the car battle with my kids alone. And so I was girding up for battle, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm playing through some scenarios in my head when they're complaining, but mom's not going, why do I have to? That's exactly what my kids sound like. Um, what am I going to say? But as I, I, this, this question kept tumbling in my head. Where I thought, as a parent, why do I take my kids to church? That's an important question, right? I just had to go always before. Now I have to actually ask myself these things. And I thought, well, it's probably so they can get donuts and jump on bounce houses, right? That's not quite it. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I tell them, um, oh, it's so you go to heaven when you die. Oh, well, that's a, bit, that's a bit morbid for this early in the morning in a six-year-old, so maybe, maybe not that one. I thought, well, maybe, maybe taking my kids to church is like spiritual dry cleaning, where I can check them in dirty and I pick them up an hour later clean. That's, that's a good one. Could be that. I didn't really think in any of those were going to be very persuasive to my, my children, though. And I, but I kept thinking about it, and ultimately I decided that if they push back today, this is what I'm going to say. Because I've been a part of church communities for my entire life, and it has been one of the most meaningful, fundamental, and life-giving experiences in, in my, whole, my whole life. And I love you, and I want that for you. And I decided that's what, that's what we're going with. But I get up way before my kids do because apparently once you turn 40, you can't sleep in ever again. And so I had more time for my mind to run. And so then I actually got to thinking about like, well, why do I make the choice as an adult to attend church? Why am I going? And it's not for donuts and bounce houses, although it's pretty fun too. Um, I thought, well, maybe I go just to get a, a quick spiritual fill-up, a little encouragement to carry me through the week. Um, but I don't think that's it. And like, I mean, just to be candid, and like, we should talk about things, right? It's been a long time since a sermon was like a pivotal, like watershed tilting moment for me and my spiritual life. When it comes to learning, I learn more through reading books and through uh, having long, deep conversations with people about these sort of topics. So I don't think I come on Sundays just to, for, my, for my one like weekly vitamin of spiritual life. I come because on Sunday mornings, this is an opportunity for me to participate in the community of the redeemed. Right? And redeemed is an important word to me, like, because I do believe that God is working to bring all of creation, right, all parts of the world into redemption, to be fully restored, made as they were always meant to be, that all things that are broken will be fixed, that all things that hurt will be healed, that everyone who cries will have their tears dried. I believe that. That it's not just about me getting my moral mistakes fixed, but that everything is going to be redeemed and made to work perfectly together again. And when I come to church, 
I get to grab a glimpse of that. When I participate in the lives of the people I've come to know and love through this place, I get to have just a snapshot of what that is because God has called us to be living as an example of what God is like and what life with God is. And so let me tell you, this is just last week, last Sunday, this is how I saw that come to be. I brought my kids in, right? And I got stopped outside because I was talking to some friends and the greeters and they sprinted into the donuts and then I had to pull myself away to make sure they didn't like double fist their cups of donuts, right? So I get in there and they're running and playing and having a great time. And then it comes time to put them in their classrooms. And one of my children, no matter what you ask her to do, is going to fight you on it, just always. Even if she loves it, she's like, I'll love this later. Right now, we're going head to head. So I'm trying to get her in her classroom. And my friend Polly is volunteering in that room. Polly and her husband, Ben, were some of the founding like, team of this church, absolute saints of people. And I have this interaction with Polly because two weeks earlier, my, it's my younger daughter who fights me, so it was her. Uh, two weeks earlier, my older daughter didn't want to go in her room. And she said, Dad, can I be a helper in Quinn's classroom? And um, I was like, well, let me go talk. And, but Polly was there. And she knows me, and she knows my kids. So I said, Polly, would it be okay if Nora was a helper um, in Quinn's class today? And she knows that my older kid will actually be helpful. (laughs) She said, absolutely, come on in. And I got to watch my kids go happily into the room. And I just thought, I'm so grateful for people like that who know my kids, who know me, and are willing to make a, you know, Nora's supposed to be in the tire center but was willing to make an exception. And so I had written her a thank you card after that. And so we got to have this like where she thanked me for thanking her. You know how that goes. And so I'm walking back after I've checked her in. I'm kind of feeling good about that. I come in here. My wife's not with me that day. So I'm like, oh, where am I going to sit? And I end up sitting. I sit right here in the second row next to my friends Ross and Allie and their son Asher. And uh, Ross and I have been in a core group together for maybe four or five years, long time good friends. So I'm able just to like sit right in with people who I know and love. And then I get poked in the back and I turn around and it's my friend Marnie. I saw you, you're out there somewhere, Marnie. Marnie and her husband, Bob, are snowbirds. It gets too cold for them in the winter. So they uh, spend a lot of time in the desert and I hadn't seen him in a while. And she pokes me in the back and I turn around, I get to hug Marnie and I shake Bob's hand. And then next to Marnie is, um, is Barb Quinlan. And Barb uh, works with kids at my, at my daughter's elementary school. And her name is Barb Quinlan. So at school, she introduces herself to all the kids as Barbecue. And so my kids are always like, how do you know Barbecue? And so I hug Barb and I, and I shake John's hand. And, um, and then my friend Marty comes in and sits in front of us and, and, and whoever was doing the hosting said, hey, shake a hand. And we run over and we hug each other. And I've just, I've now had all of these moments that are making me feel connected, known, appreciated, loved. And then I face the stage and I sing some songs with all of you. And we all jointly listen to Aisha teach about Sabbath and rest. Here's the thing, little little view behind the scenes. Those of us who plan worship services, what we hope for is that you will have an experience with God while you were in this place. And last week I had an experience with God. 
But that experience was not embodied through song and sermon. It was embodied through being a part of a community. It was embodied by these people who love me and who I love. And that helped me have this experience with God. This is why community is important. Because it is fundamental to who God is and we can never fully understand and know God if we do not know what it is like to participate in the kind of community that God lives eternally in. So almost two weeks ago, uh, the reason my wife couldn't join me at church last week is she had a, a Mose procedure to remove a precancerous spot on the tip of her nose. They got it all. She's fine. But they did think that the reconstruction was going to be very dramatic and that she was going to have like multiple months of really not being able to go out. And um, fortunately, it ended up being easier um, and a quicker healing process than they thought. But we had prepared ourselves to spend the next two months like with her um, kind of working through and suffering through this healing process of trying to get back to normal. And it has been jaw-dropping for me the way that our community has responded, the way that people have come alongside us. They have been compassionate and they have been creative in finding ways to support our family. And as a quick aside, it's important to note a lot of those people who have loved us so well are not parts of a church, are not, would not call themselves Christians. And, and yet they have shown us this kind of love and that really shouldn't surprise us. Because if we truly believe that all people were created in the image of God, which the Bible is very clear about, then we shouldn't be surprised when we see the face of God showing up in all parts of the world, right? We, we do not as the church, like have the market cornered on community. But there, we do hope that we would be, have a concentration of it here. That as we continue to grow in our understanding of who God is, that we seek to be made more into God's image, that we would be made more into that image of this Trinitarian relationship where we love and support and sacrifice for one another. That the community of the church would see an amplification or a concentration of self-giving, interdependent, sacrificial, and receptive love. And that it would be on display in the way that we love one another. Because see, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus was right when he prayed that that's what our community would look like and that it would be by seeing that kind of community that the world would come to know him. That it might just be possible that more important than our preaching, than our music, than our mission trips, than our voting history, than our stated beliefs, or than our Facebook feeds, would be the quality of community that we create in God's name that we would be a living representation to the world of who God is. We have been called by God to represent. So I'm gonna close in prayer. And this prayer is going to sound familiar because I've already read it. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed that I read as our passage from John chapter 17. This is something Jesus said 2,000 years ago. But as I read it, I'll invite you to close your eyes and to hear this 
as the words of Jesus spoken over us in this room today. God, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Amen.